Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel according to Luke. And uh, for what I expect is the last time this morning, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, as we continue to learn about the childhood, the birth and the childhood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, focus on a passage that is unique among the gospel accounts, uh, giving a little bit of a window into the time between his infancy and his adulthood. And so we're going to read in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, and then hone in on those last two verses where we left off last time as we learn about the boy Jesus growing up. Luke chapter 2, we'll read verses 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Some of you are baseball fans. Some of you are not baseball fans at all. And maybe some of you are in the middle. But regardless of your knowledge of the game or your interest in the game or how closely you follow it, most, if not all of you, probably know that when it comes to baseball, there are two basic types of players. There are pitchers and there's everyone else. There are pitchers who start each play by throwing the ball toward home plate, trying to get it across home plate without the uh, batter being able to hit it or to get the batter to hit it to someone on their team to be able to get them out. And then there are the batters, the other players who play the other eight positions when they're in the field who try to hit the ball to a place where there's no fielder so they can run around the bases and score runs and so that they can get more runs than the other team. Now, it's quite a bit more complex than that when you begin to actually watch or to play the game. But when it comes to positions, there are basically pitchers and there is everyone else. And the farther up you get in the ranks of skill level, the more and more players begin to specialize. You either become a pitcher or a position player. It's not uncommon for a high school or even a college player to play both positions, although more so when you get into college. But once you reach professional baseball, it's extremely uncommon to the point where there was a rule that, be, that was implemented some decades ago in half of Major League Baseball. The American League calls the designated hitter rule, which allowed for position players to bat in the place of the pitcher every time he came up. One designated hitter who wouldn't play defense anywhere, but he did hit in place of the pitcher because the pitchers are such bad hitters. This rule was just recently adopted as well in the National League. 
And now all of Major League Baseball follows the designated hitter rule. Why is that the case? Well, because pitchers can't hit. That's just the way that things are, or were, until Shohei Otani entered the major leagues, coming over from Japan as not only a very, very, very good pitcher, but one of the best, if not the best, hitters in Major League Baseball currently. In fact, according to one statistic, OPS, which is often used to measure how good overall a hitter is, he might be the best hitter in baseball and leads the league as of right now in that particular statistical category. He is, uh, in fact, so good at both of these things that there is a rule that is known as the Otani rule, which enables him to remain in the game as a designated hitter even when he's come out of the game as a pitcher. This is someone who is blowing up these categories. He's unique, and this is stunning, and they've had to even uh, address this in terms of rules because the simple reality is that people just can't be that good at both of these things, right? There's no possible way you can be both a hitter and a pitcher, unless you are. Now, I'm using this picture uh, just to make the point that sometimes people have a hard time believing that something can be one thing and not another, even in mere human terms, which are, at the end of the day, possible. This is unusual. It's impressive. Uh, it's the kind of thing where you want to go see this guy play just because he's so good in both of these things. But these are things that are just human possibilities. But when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, there is something that is just categorically all the more difficult to be at the same time. And so people struggle to understand that it can be the case and have struggled throughout history to, understood, to understand that it could be the case, which has to do with the nature of the person, or perhaps I should better put, the natures of the person of Jesus Christ. They come to Jesus Christ and they read things in the scripture that show he's God, and they read things in the scripture that show that he's man, and they say they can't both really be true, can they? This both can't happen in one single person. There's no way that he can be fully God and yet do all of these things and be all of these things as a man. Or there's no way that he can really be man and yet actually possess all of these divine attributes in full. There's just no way. It's not possible. Like a guy who's a pitcher and a catcher but on an infinitely greater scale. There's just no way this can happen, people think. And yet, the wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God is that that is the case. That Jesus is both of these things. That he is fully, truly God and he is fully, truly man. And this passage gives us a, a, a unique glimpse into one side of that in particular when we come to verses 51 and especially verse 52. On the one hand, there's nothing special about his growing up at all. When you read this, what does it say? Verse 51, he continued in subjection to them, so he obeyed his parents. Maybe there's something special about that relative to other people, but in general, children uh, can and do often obey their parents to a great extent. And then in verse 52, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Well, that's just what people do when they grow up in maturity and they grow in their godly character. They, they do these things. So in one sense, there's nothing special about it. But this is not just any kid growing up. This is God in the flesh doing these things. This is the God-man. 
And before we get to the rest of this gospel, where Jesus is ministering as an adult, where he starts to do these amazing miracles in the power of the Spirit, where he starts to be so impressive that it's easy perhaps to only notice his deity and his divine nature at times, we want to make sure that we understand fully, uh, as fully as we can anyway, the reality of Jesus' humanity and what that means and what that meant for him so that we don't fall into the kind of error of saying, well, he has to be one or the other. He can only be one of these. Or there's something about this that just isn't right. And this is going to help us to understand, to, uh, to prepare for what we learn of Jesus in his adult earthly ministry as we understand the nature of the person of who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And so this morning, uh, we're going to sort of drill down here a little bit into these last two verses, and in particular, verse 52. And though I would say that we, uh, generally speaking, do talk a lot of theology when we come to learn from the Word of God, this morning, uh, we might be a little bit more explicitly theological, a little bit more directly and explicitly theological as to the matters that we tackle. So uh, I invite you to follow along here as I review uh, the last, last week's uh, message just briefly, and then we will look into what verses 52, 51 and 52 say. Um, last week, we discovered Jesus going to Jerusalem with his family for the feast every week. Uh, he remained at Jerusalem unnoticed, and while he was there, he was displaying his understanding to everyone. He showed that he was a special child, that he was not just any person, but he as a 12-year-old had this audience and had this interaction with these teachers in the temple that demonstrated his amazing knowledge, his insight, such that the people who heard in verse 47 were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents were not pleased about this and they sort of missed the point. Why are you here? Why didn't you tell us? They're concerned with things that are a little bit more, though understandable, still human in nature. Priority uh, they're prioritizing the kinds of things that people would do apart from understanding what God's purpose was for Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 49, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Or as we saw and as some other versions render it, in my father's business. Doing the things that concern my father. Doing what he is all about. Being interested in what he is interested in. Being interested in what he has said. Talking about him. Talking with others about him. Pursuing my relationship with him. This is what Jesus was doing. And this is because he is the Messiah. Because he is the son of God. He is drawn toward this. And he almost, though he is self-controlled at all times. But he almost could not help but go and take part in this while it was happening. Well, his parents didn't understand, but this doesn't mean he was a disobedient child. We learn in verse 51 that he did actually follow them and he was submissive to them. And this is where we're going to pick up here this morning. But what we're going to find in this text is the growing maturity of the God-man according to his true humanity is put on display. The growing maturity of the God-man according to his true humanity is put on display as Jesus lives out the remainder of his childhood before his public ministry begins. So we're going to watch here what is here, mainly in verse 52, the God-man, Jesus Christ, growing up, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with, with God and with man according to his real and true humanity before his public ministry begins. Now, 
as I've sort of hinted at. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time on the third of uh, what will be three main headings today. I just want to say a few words about the first two, both from verse 51 before we get there. Um, You'll note in verse 51, Jesus' obedience to his parents. It says he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. Uh, This indicates that he was an obedient child. This indicates that his time at the temple wasn't an act of rebellion. Jesus had not defied his parents in doing this. His entire spirit was one of doing what his parents said. And this shows us that even the person with the most important role in all of history, the one who had all authority in heaven and earth, is not beyond following divinely ordained authority structures. And if Jesus had to follow the ordained authority that God gave to him, so also we should follow divinely ordained authorities. Jesus obeyed his parents. So too should all children today obey their parents. And we as Christians should submit, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Everything that God says is the authority he has placed over us, whatever that might be, we are supposed to follow them. We are supposed to submit to them. And so Jesus was obedient to his parents. This demonstrated as well his own character. This was uh, an expression of his own sinless and perfect conduct before God on the earth. He continued in subjection to them just as he had done before this 12-year-old incident and then continuing afterward. The next thing we notice in verse 51 is Jesus' observation by his mother. His observation by his mother. His mother, it says, treasured all these things in her heart. Mary kept them. She protected them. She preserved them and remembered them in her heart. She may have had them written down somewhere in some way, but that's not really what it says here about the way that she remembered this. What she did was keep them in her mind, in her heart. She remembered these things and she valued them. Now, this is not to say that she's the only one who did this. And this is interesting because his parents were with him while this is happening. He continued in subjection to his parents, but Luke points out specifically his mother. And this isn't because his mother is more important than his father. It isn't because his mother has some sort of supernatural ability or position that needs to be esteemed. Uh, There are some reasons Instead, why it's important enough to note Mary's response. One of these is because this isn't the first time that this has happened. Um, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Mary had a similar response previously in Luke's gospel when the shepherds reported these things to them. It says in verse 19, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart, just as she had done in chapter 1 when the angel came to her. Uh, Luke notes two points of prophetic revelation there that were given directly to Mary, but not to Joseph. And then we find that Joseph was evidently no longer around, uh, presumably no longer living, by the time Jesus began his public ministry some 18 years later. Only Mary then would be around to pass these things on or these historical events on as far as what she was thinking and what she saw in those direct settings that only Jesus and his parents would have been there for. Only Mary is around to pass those down to the generations to come and uh, very possibly to be the provider of information to Luke, uh, whether directly to him or through the other apostles or just simply telling everyone she could uh, about the particular pieces of history that were here. So he notes Mary as one who would have been a very reliable source for the things that happened in her own life and with her own special child. 
So he was observed by his mother, and she noted these things. She kept them, and she kept a record of them in her heart. These are significant events, and we're thankful that they're not lost to history, but rather recorded for us. Well, what happened then? What happened next? Verse 52 lays out for us what we'll call Jesus' growth as a human being. Jesus' growth as a human being. And it says Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus was progressing or advancing is kind of the idea here. He was doing this. And it was not that he grew into being a human being, like he started out not really a human and, or maybe started out partially human and had to grow into becoming one. But rather, this is his growth as someone who was born already a human being. This is his growth then according to his true humanity. His growth according to his true humanity. And uh, this is the first of three sort of categories we'll note here. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time, uh, quite a long time here this morning, talking about what it means for Jesus to be truly human. Now, to do so, I want to first just talk about the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus is truly God. He's truly divine. Uh, just as a backdrop to this, and there are a number of passages, many passages in the New Testament that indicate that this is the case. Uh, for example, in John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In addition to noting the fact that the Word, who was later said to become flesh, this is Jesus Christ, in addition to directly saying that he was God, even at this time, he uses the phrase, in the beginning, to allude to Genesis 1-1, the very beginning of the Bible, when God created the heavens and the earth. There is nothing that is uncreated before that, uh, nothing that is created before that point. Everything that exists at that point is uncreated, and Jesus is among that. The Son of God, the Word, is there in the beginning. Colossians 1.17 tells us not only did he make everything, but he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He sustains the universe. Everything that has been made is not only made by Jesus Christ, but it is held together by him. Jesus speaks of being glorified alongside the Father before the world existed. John 17, 5, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We learn that Jesus is the Holy One in Luke 4, 34. A demon rightly identified him as such. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. John 5.21 tells us that the Son gives life to whom he wishes. Because he has, like the Father, life in himself. And he says in John 5.23 that it is appropriate for this to take place. For all to honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. This is the way that we are supposed to honor the Son, who we know now as Jesus Christ. We are supposed to honor him even as we honor the Father. Now, if he is anything less than the Father in terms of his deity, that is a blasphemous statement by Jesus Christ. To say that he deserves the same type of honor as the Father would be blasphemy. But it's not because it's true. Hebrews 1.3 tells us through him he made the world. 
He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Revelation 2.23 says that he is the one who searches the minds and the hearts, just as Jeremiah 17.10 credits to the Lord. And so Jesus possesses all of these divine attributes. Additionally, he is referred to by divine names, such as in Isaiah 9.6, when it says that a child will be born to us, And it says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We learn in Philippians 2.11 that one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is who? Lord. This is not just a title of authority or being a master. But we are to ascribe to Jesus that title that was given to none other than God himself in the Old Testament. This is what Romans 10 tells us. If you confess with your mouth... Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does he mean there by Lord? Well, Romans 12, uh, 10, 12, he goes on to say, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the God that is described in the Old Testament. And this is the language that Paul applies to Jesus himself. He is Claiming, he is asserting the deity of Christ. Asserting his deity. Jesus, when Thomas spoke to him, most certainly did not reject, but implicitly agreed with his his assessment that he was, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. When angels were worshipped and fallen down before, they said, hey, get up. I'm a created being like you. But when Jesus was called God, he let it happen because this is who he is. Now, it's perhaps a given for most of you here today, and hopefully it's a given for all of us now after going through some of these things, and there is much more that we could look at. But hopefully it's a given that for you, Jesus is God. And hopefully you're ready to fight against all kinds of errors to, uh, and against those who would deny that fact. But do you properly understand at the same time just as well what it means for Christ to be truly man. Do you understand the other side of this coin? And it's vital that we go through the rest of this book, or as we go through the rest of this book, to understand that fact. So we're going to look at that here. Now, let's consider now the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ. A couple of very clear passages. Romans 1 verse 3 says, He was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Could barely be more direct. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So here he is, truly man. Now, these two things fit together. How do they fit together? Well, we call this the uniting of these Two natures, we call this the hypostatic union. Many of you know the phrase, the hypostatic union. And what this refers to is the two natures in one person. Divine nature and human nature in one person. We're going to talk about how these things relate together. Some errors that people have made. Uh, not just errors that are, uh, that are harmless, but heretical errors that do damage to the nature of salvation itself. 
But these are the two natures uniting in one person. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh. What does it mean for that to happen? Well, it means before this, he was simply the word, the second person in the Trinity, very much God, fully God, God the Son even, but merely, if you can use the term merely to describe God, merely God, only God and not anything else. But upon his incarnation, he became also something else forever, namely, truly human. So he remained what he was as God and then he became also something else, which was and is human. In John chapter 12, the Apostle John references two passages from Isaiah concerning Jesus. He references Isaiah 53, and many of you know that Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant, one that his nation, his counterparts couldn't even uh, tell him apart from anyone else. There was nothing special about him. He was so obviously a man that they just thought that he was a common person like anyone else. There was nothing distinct about him at all, and he ended up dying. They didn't know he was suffering for their sins. He also makes reference to Isaiah chapter 6, a vision of Isaiah when he saw the Lord sitting in the temple. And you know the story because uh, it's where the angels say, holy, holy, holy. And they worship the Lord. And John refers to that vision and he says, these things Isaiah spoke because he saw him. Who is the him in that case? It is Jesus. And so in one section, in John 12, he refers to Jesus very obviously as the one who was man to the point where people didn't think he was anything more. And Jesus is the Lord, the one that Isaiah saw in the temple in a vision. Jesus is really and truly both of these things. He is both God and man at the same time. Now, not everybody has always agreed with the way that the Bible lays these things out, or they've struggled to understand these things, and they have, in the process, they have compromised one or the other or even both of the natures of Christ or the person of Christ uh, as these two natures are united in the one person. So I want to just list out for you and just show you a few uh, heresies to avoid. It's good to avoid heresy, isn't it? We like to avoid heresy. Why? Because heresy is not just minor error, which we want to avoid as well, but it's the kind of thing where if you believe it, you're going to misunderstand Christ and you're not going to be able to believe in him for salvation. These things are vital. Uh, one theologian summarizes the danger in understanding or misunderstanding how the two natures of Christ unite together. Quote, Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct but inseparable natures. The temptation among philosophers and theologians has been to divide his person or to confound his natures. To divide his person or to confound his natures. Either of which is a heresy which denies who he is and undercuts his atoning work for sin. End quote. And so I want to just list out for you um, six major heresies to avoid which were promoted in the early centuries of Christian history. I'm going to give you some very uh, simple, even oversimplified summaries of these. But just so you know the kinds of things that people believe when they, uh, when they misunderstand the nature of Christ. So we have, uh, and you can write these down if you want or you can look these up just about anywhere. But Ebionism, which denied Christ's deity. It denied that Jesus was really God, just 
that he was man only. Now, this is a common view today among people of other religions besides Christianity. Um, But it's not one that's easily defended if your authority is the entire Bible. But this was nonetheless an early heresy that had to be rejected. Another is docetism, which denied Christ's true humanity. So you have people denying Christ's deity, and then you have people who denied Christ's humanity. This denied that Jesus was really a man. It was just God uh, seeming like he was a man. He appeared to be a man. He looked like he was a man, but he wasn't really. Again, this was addressed early on in Christian history and was rejected in favor of realizing that Jesus was truly, really a man. Another of these heresies was Arianism, which denied Christ's complete deity. So a little bit more subtle, but it said that Jesus, in essence, was like God, but not actually God. He was created by the Father and was not of the same essence of the Father. And so it's a little bit of a, little bit of a trick to try to, uh, to have your cake and eat it too, but it denied his complete deity, denied his complete deity and needed to be rejected. Another of these heresies was Apollinarianism, Apollinarianism, which denied Christ's human spirit, which is to say they, re- they acknowledged that Jesus was God, but they rejected that he was really man. They said he just had a human body, not a human nature. Maybe you've heard of this heresy as what is known as God in a bod, God in a body. He sort of had a human body, but he wasn't really human. And so they would say there's a divine nature But as to his humanity, he doesn't have a human nature, just a human body. Then you have the heresy of Nestorianism, Nestorianism, which divided the persons. It claimed that Jesus was two persons, a divine person with a divine nature and a human person with a human nature, which denied the union of the natures, a true union of the natures in a single person. And then finally, a heresy called Eutychianism, Eutychianism, which claimed a single nature of Christ, but it was a a new kind of nature. They said Jesus was one person, but with one nature that was uh, sort of a combination uh, of the human nature and the divine, such that it was a third type of nature, sort of a third thing, uh, something that's neither really divine nor human, but something else, something that is unique. So it denied the distinction and the realities of Jesus' humanity and of Jesus' deity all at once. It's almost like, and I know this fails at some point, but to describe it imperfectly, it's almost like as if the two natures had a chemical reaction and something new was formed out of them that had not been there before in either case, something in the basic composition of who he was to where the old stuff isn't around anymore. This, of course, misunderstands the nature of Christ as truly human and as truly divine. Now, we'll consider in a moment how the early church responded in progression to some of these errors, and in particular, uh, one of the the ways in which this is summarized. But before we get there, I just want to give you a few key points to understanding Christ's person. To understanding Christ's person. First of all, he is really and truly God. He is really and truly God. Secondly, he is really and truly man. Both of these things should be evident from the passages mentioned earlier as well as, again, many others. He is really and truly God. He is really and truly man. Thirdly, he is one person. He is one person. And then, fourthly, he possesses two natures, both the divine and the human. 
So he is really God. He's really man. He is one single person, not two persons. But instead, he has two natures joined together in the one person. And these natures are and remain the same nature as other beings who have that nature. His divine nature is just like that of God the Father and God the Spirit. His human nature is just like that of mankind, except for the fact that mankind had fallen into sin and Jesus didn't do that or possess that corrupt heart. But neither nature is changed or reduced. The natures don't merge into each other and form something new. Instead, he is a single person who not only has a true and divine full nature as God, just like the Father and the Spirit, but he also has a true and full human nature just like you and I do, with all the attributes that are non-negotiable to being human. These two natures, then, are united in the one person. They are united in the one person such that Jesus Christ retains the fullness of each nature. Now, just one more thing to note here in the way that we speak about this. The Bible never refers to something like this. It never says, Jesus' human nature did this, or Jesus' divine nature did that. It doesn't speak about his natures in separation from them. It's always simply the person did this. Jesus did this. He is, and he always acts as, a single person. And Many of the things that he does are done according to his humanity or according to his deity in the sense that they demonstrate or express attributes of that particular nature. But they're not being done by his humanity or by his deity as if it's kind of a distinct being called his humanity or his deity. Instead, they are being done by Jesus. Jesus does these things because he possesses both natures at the same time. So then, he is the one who can sleep on a boat, and then the next moment turn the storm into a standstill because he is sleeping according to his humanity, but he is able to control and to, uh, to take charge of everything that is in the world. He's already in control of it, and so he can tell the seed to stop, and it does whatever he says, things like that. So Jesus did that. Now, we get some help here from what are known as early church councils, church councils. At various times in the history of Christianity, groups of church leaders from all over the globe or all over the map have convened together to tackle various theological and ecclesiastical issues. And these councils are by no means inerrant. You know this. We uh, hear Luther's famous statement about that, that they have often erred. They have often made mistakes. Um, these councils are by no means authoritative. They do not get to dictate upon the church what we believe and what we say. We don't have to come to the conclusions that they come to. We don't have to use the language that they used. Nonetheless, some of these have been especially helpful throughout the centuries to people in the church, in particular in early church creeds that deal with the nature of the Godhead and for our concerns, especially this morning, with the person of Jesus Christ. And several church councils, I'll just have a list of them up here and we'll focus on the fourth one, but several church councils in the fourth and fifth century addressed um, what were really the, the more subtle final four of the heresies that I mentioned earlier, not the, not the uh, first two of Ebionism and Docetism, but the, the last four and they made some helpful progress in the exact formulation of the doctrine of Christ's person over against them. And uh, these four councils that were especially helpful, again, we'll focus on the last, were the councils of Nicaea, uh, the first council of Constantinople, the council of Ephesus, and then the council of Chalcedon. 
Chalcedon. And that's the one that tackles our subject the most thoroughly. And I just, uh, I want to read you something from what came out of that council. This was in 451, AD 451. And specifically what came to be known as the Chalcedonian definition. The Chalcedonian definition, you say, this is not what I was expecting when I walked in here this morning. But it's really helpful for us. It, It really answers one big question. One big question. What does it mean that Jesus became incarnate? What does it mean that he became flesh? What does it mean that the word became flesh? What is this union about? What what are these two natures? How do they fit together? How does this work? In other words, what does it mean for the person of Jesus of Nazareth? The person. Who he is. What he's like. what, What is his nature when we say that the word became flesh? And so I just want to read from this. I want to read this, what we call the Chalcedonian definition. I believe you have this up on the screen behind you if you want to follow along. And it says this, therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in, and watch this, two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, Without separation, you say, well, I'm feeling some confusion here, so I'm not sure what that's talking about, but we'll get to that in a moment. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Now, this is coming at the same question from a lot of angles, isn't it? They want to be really, really clear about what they're saying. You may have noticed for without phrases, phrases that begin with without. These are known as the four fences of Chalcedon, and they guard like a fence against wrong ways of understanding the union of the two natures in one person. So when he is without confusion, it is, there's no mixing of these natures together. It's not just let's throw all this stuff into a pot and see what comes out. Uh, he retains his divine nature and his human nature. Without change, there's no change to the nature. So he's not, you know, no longer really human or really God, not something different. Instead, he retains, he, he maintains those two natures the same. Without division, there, there's not two different persons. Without division or separation, there is instead one person in whom these two natures are united. So why all of this? Why all the hubbub? Why did all of these guys get together for weeks and feel compelled to actually tell people this is what you need to believe. And why do they need to be this specific? And why do they need to write it down? And why do they need to, uh, to preserve this and to attack it from so many angles? Why was this so important? 
Because it really matters what Jesus is. It really matters who he is. It matters what he is like. People today may not think that. They just think, here's Jesus, and then they fill in the blanks of who Jesus is with whatever they want him to be. You might think of Jesus as the one who just helps you when you need help. He gives you encouragement, or he's a good example for you, or maybe he's the one who was a good teacher and you like his teachings, but you've never thought once about the nature of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you just assume he's only a man, or maybe you just think of him as only God, but not thinking about how he actually became really man when he came to the earth. The Bible cares a lot about this. We may not care as humans sometimes, but the Bible cares a lot. On the one hand, Jesus must be God, the ever-living one, because that's at least part of what it means to be the Son of God. And we are told, according to John 20, 31, that the way of salvation is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the what? The Son of God. You have to believe who Jesus is to be a Christian and to receive eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. On the other hand, The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? So that he could be a faithful and sympathetic high priest and he could offer up propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to bleed and die. He had to be a sacrifice like us. And if he's not truly man, he couldn't do that. So as the object of our faith and as the one who provides the means and the grounds of our faith, Jesus Christ, who he is, matters eternally. And both of these things need to be true at the same time. So it's helpful for us to understand how this works without goofing up or mixing up the relationship of the two. So what does this mean for us? It means that Jesus is a single person, the son. He has a divine nature and is fully God. And he also is just as much truly and fully human as well at the same time and always will be. So then... The focus of Luke 2.52 is his true humanity. We learn here um, and throughout the rest of the scriptures that, first of all, Jesus' deity does not hinder his true humanity. His deity doesn't get in the way. It doesn't prevent him from human limitations or growth according to his humanity. Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men because he is human. Not because his deity is flawed or changes, but because according to humanity, that's the way things work. You're born, you grow up, and you have these attributes as man. Jesus being God doesn't limit him to 99% God capacity. Instead, the two natures are joined in such a way as to allow him to be man in its fullness. And so Jesus can be always with us as God, as he promises, and yet also spatially located either on earth or in heaven. Jesus can be, um, he can be all-powerful as God, and yet he also, upon the earth, needed to eat and to sleep. Jesus can be all-knowing as God, and yet able to grow in wisdom as a man. Why? Because he possesses all the essential attributes of God and those of man. And so his deity doesn't hinder his humanity, and his, uh, his humanity doesn't diminish his deity. I'm slotting this in here, by the way, in between this and the second point. Um, sometimes people misunderstand the passage in Philippians chapter 2, which said that Jesus emptied himself, and yet his emptying of himself was not the release of his attributes, but rather the addition of an additional nature 
which then had some ramifications for his status and the way that he was viewed and the way he was treated and his experiences. He died and suffered and was rejected and was regarded as lowly and lived his life as a slave and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, only because he became man. He never stopped being God, but he did become man. And his humanity did not diminish that deity. And then also his humanity allows for, enables the experiences that are unique to man, that only man can have, that Jesus could not have before his incarnation. There are distinct elements of humanity that Jesus could not experience before he became man. As here in Luke's account, his birth and his growth. We've been reading about this. He was born and then he grew up. He couldn't do that as God. He couldn't do that according to his deity, but he did because he was a man. In Mark 4, we read about Jesus becoming tired and sleeping. This is the kind of thing that you can only do if you are not just God, but you are human. He got hungry and thirsty. Luke chapter 4, you can look there a page ahead. And it says that he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became what? Hungry. Why? Because he's a man. So he's hungry. When he was on the cross, he said, I am thirsty. Jesus endured physical pain and death as he suffered and died on a cross. And of course, he did this for us. He did this for our salvation. Jesus went through all these human experiences, not only so that he could identify with us, but also so that he could be a proper sacrifice for our sins. And this is exactly what we need because Jesus isn't just a good example for us. Jesus is the one who atoned for our sins. We have to put our faith in him. We have to put our hope upon him. But because he became man, truly, he is able to bear the sacrifice for sins that we deserved and be the kind of sacrifice that God would accept. Additionally to this, Jesus went through temptation. We'll read about this in Luke 4, but he was tempted just like we are. Now, he doesn't have the same type of evil desires inside of himself, which cause our temptation to be a little bit different in one respect. But the book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in all points, yet as we are, he faced the same opportunities to sin. And there were things that he could have really, really enjoyed. He was given the opportunity to satiate his human desires in ways that would have violated the instructions he had from God, from his word and from God's specific instructions to him, but he chose not to. He refused to sin, but he was tempted. And then learning, as we find here in Luke 2.52. Let's look at this. Growth in his body and mind. Growth in his body and mind. It says he grew in his wisdom and stature. Stature. Basically, he's growing taller. He grew in his size. Uh, He presumably grew in his weight as well. Jesus grew in both of these respects, but not only of his body, it was also in wisdom. This would consist not only in facts, but also through the wise application of facts. What he knew, information that was communicated to him in some way at some times, but then also as he implemented that and he would grow in the ability to live wisely in the world that God gave. So Jesus grew in wisdom. Now, it seems, according to what we read earlier in this passage, that Jesus grew at a clip that was beyond anyone who had ever lived, in particular his wisdom in divine things, because he was, for one, sinless and therefore eminently receptive to the word of God. 
He wouldn't have rejected God's word or said, I'll get back to that later, but he would soak it all up. Um, And he had no cloud of sinful desires that would get in the way of that. But he wanted to know what God said. And this probably accounts in at least large part for how much he knew at the temple because he took on God's truth. He took it in so willingly. But he learned, he grew in wisdom. Now, this is the kind of thing that we might be shocked to read about because we say, well, he's, he's omniscient. He knows everything. And yet this statement clearly shows us that there is uh, a nature in Jesus as well that took part in learning because it's a true and real human nature, a true and real human nature to the point where even as an adult, he made this statement in Matthew 24, 36 about the future. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Jesus in his humanity, according to his humanity, had to learn things. And uh, of course, he had a knowledge that is phenomenal and a wisdom that's phenomenal. But nonetheless, this speaks to his real humanity. Finally, we observe in this verse, Jesus' growth in favor with God and men. His growth in favor with God and men. God set his grace upon him, but part of this is in response to the way that he, uh, the way that he faithfully walked before God. This is a very clear echo, by the way, of 1 Samuel 2.26, where the boy Samuel, it says, was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. But it's also an obvious allusion to Proverbs 3, verse 4, where it says, So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. And this promise in Proverbs 3 comes on the heels of uh, an instruction from Solomon to his son to keep the teaching of his parents, to obey them, to be wise and to listen to that. And it's interesting that Jesus here is in subjection to his parents all the while, that he himself is growing in wisdom also. Um, Jesus is said to grow in favor with men. This is maybe something that we struggle with um, because we know that the Bible warns us against something to do with this. What is it? Pleasing man. Pleasing man. We're warned against this all the time. So the idea of being well thought of by other people, that can be a real danger. In fact, Jesus told people, woe to you when all men speak well of you. So what do we make of this? Well, this is telling us that you don't have to compromise to grow in favor with men. In fact, it's generally true that if you're a wise person, according to God's kind of wisdom, this is what you're going to find. And this isn't new. This isn't just Jesus uh, showing this. This is what Solomon said a thousand years earlier in Proverbs 3. People thought highly of him, not because he compromised the truth, but because of the opposite, because he was faithful. Now, it is true that acting in godly ways sometimes draws the ire of people around you. It's true. It's convicting to them. Uh, They don't like it. It's uncomfortable in many cases. But it's also true that being godly, generally speaking, is the kind of thing that commends you to others. How could it not? You're kind. You're gracious. You're wise. You do the kinds of things that make for uh, skilled living in the world. So we have to remember that both of these things are true. Uh, It's easy for us to think that godliness means just that people will not like you. But that's just not the case. Um, It's only part of the truth. And I would say even perhaps more of the exception to the rule for most of us. And so we should 
strive to please God, and if we do this, we may ourselves do this, but Jesus himself was showing that he was doing things God's way and and that he was following a godly and wise path in that people around him had for him, they had a high view of him. He had a good reputation with them because he was doing it right. Finally, it says here that Jesus increased with favor with God. In favor with God. And this is another fascinating statement because you look at this and you say, well, Jesus is sinless. How is it possible for him to get any better than that? And what this is telling us is that there is sort of a positive slant to the Christian life, to life before God, that is not just about not messing up. I think too many of us fear walking before God, and all we're concerned about is not messing up, not messing up. We have, here's the perfect standard, and all I care about, this is my baseline, 100%. And if I fail, then that's disappointing, but there's no room above that. But the Bible doesn't put it in that way. It talks about the idea of pleasing God, of God being delighted in what we do, which puts an entirely different spin on obedience. Yes, we are to avoid rebelling against God and sinning against God, but Jesus didn't have that problem. He wasn't growing out of a life of sin and just getting rid of the bad. Instead, he was pleasing God in his walk. He was more and more becoming the kind of man that God delights in. And not only does this teach us about who he was and his own perfect character and all that that means for our salvation, but this tells us as an example that we should strive to do the same. I hope that your sanctification efforts, your efforts to holiness are not just about, let me avoid doing these things because I just don't want to get marked out or in trouble. This is not all there is. We should strive to do what's right and to grow in grace because this pleases God. And we can do this in any circumstance. You can do this at any time, whether or not anybody is around, whether anyone sees you or knows or recognizes it. God sees everything, and you can please God in the biggest or the smallest of moments, just like Jesus did here. What a person, is he not? The God-man, perfect in his deity, perfect in his humanity, worthy of worship, worthy of our imitation, perfect as a sacrifice for our sins. And uh, I hope that you can dig into this as far as the scripture allows us and that your mind is blown beyond that. And I hope that you understand who he is as we move forward in learning about his ministry to the watching world as an adult going forward. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your instruction of us from your word. You're so gracious to reveal your truth to us, and we just thank you for your kindness and your love. We thank you for sending Jesus into the world as one who is like us in every respect according to his humanity, except for our sin. You just made him come to the world in a way that was completely perfect. We're so grateful for that. We pray that you would help us to be in awe of him as we leave here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.